0: So when you're there, all you can think of is I want to make you know money. I don't want to be poor. Then you make money and then you make more money. And then at some point it stops being about the money because, yeah, technically I don't have to. And actually, some investors ask me, why do you do this? I mean, you obviously don't need to keep doing it. But, you know, and I'm not comparing myself to those guys at all. They're still, you know, I'm light years away. But if you look at Steve Schwartzman, if you look at, you know, Jeff Bezos, they don't have to work either. Why do they do what they do? because it's rewarding, because it's fulfilling, because there's nothing better than to tackle an issue and solve it and say, ah, I fixed it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world actually invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from beautiful, sunny, warm California. Today, we're going to do something a bit different. Today, I'm going to be the guest on my show and... Jeanette Robinson, who's the director of Investor Relations, is going to interview me. She's going to be the host. But before we dive into that, just wanted to, if you don't know me, if you haven't read about me, I want to give you a little bit of background about me. I used to be a real estate attorney in my past life, and then a property manager, and then finally an investor and, you know, sponsor operator. My company has owned about, you know, over 620 a million in assets under management, close to 3,000 units across the US. And we do that by investing with our investors. So we invest in the deals. Investors are chipping in and investing with us as well. And that's what we do. We find the deals, we negotiate with the seller, we put financing, we manage the deals, and then we exit them. And today on the show as I mentioned, we have Jeanette Robinson. She's going to ask me, it's kind of ask me anything today. She's going to ask me questions and I'm not even sure what she's going to ask because I wanted to be surprised. And here's an idea. If there's a topic you want us to talk about, if there's a question you want me to answer, feel free to shoot us an email at info at bluelake-capital.com and maybe we'll include it in one of our, you know, episodes. So, Jeanette, welcome to the show. And now I'm going to hand it over to you. I'm the guest. You're the host. So take it from here.
1: I'm going to welcome you to the show. Welcome to the show, Ellie. (laughs) Thank you, Jeanette. It's great to be here. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. And we are excited to learn more about you and help all of our listeners and our investors, you know, just get a little bit more of an idea of who you are, how you're wired, and you know why you lead the way that you lead at the company, and you know how you manage our portfolio. I think it'll be fun. Let's do it. Without further ado. So my first question to you, and I don't even really know this answer. I have a guess, but I don't know for sure, is what deal have we had in the past that actually scared you? And why? And mm-hmm. how did you turn it around? What kept you up at night?
0: These are two different questions. The deal that scared me, you know, keep me up at night, but actually, I mean I don't get scared that easily, but a deal that I would say I was more concerned about was the first deal that I've done and it wasn't it wasn't scary, there was just uncertainty there because every time you go and you purchase the first deal, you're unsure how much, you know, work is really required of you without going through the whole thing and there's also a concern about okay, I'm going to raise an money from investors, I haven't done it before and there's some uncertainty there. So it was more of a concern than a scare, but the way that I've approached it, it was basically partnering with someone much more experienced than me. And then I said, okay, I know that the property is in good hands and we can share the burden of quote unquote of capital raise. So there's not going to be an issue for me if I won't be able to raise enough money And so I think that was the most uncomfortable deal that I've done. And after that, after you do it once, twice, three times, even when, you know, you purchase an asset at the beginning, the onset of COVID, when nobody was buying deals, that's much more comfortable than the first deal you do. The first deal is always, you don't know what year, what you don't know, and you're aware of it. So that's, that's one thing. What kept me at night was actually our entire portfolio when, again, when COVID just hit in March of 2020 Or at least when we became aware of it, of its presence in our lives, it kept me up at night because we didn't know what to expect. And actually nobody did because I don't think any sponsor that I know that lives today ever went through a pandemic where, you know, the tenants could actually walk away, not pay. And we didn't know, you know, are people going to escape in the middle of the night without paying? Are they going to stop paying altogether? And that kept me, you know, up at night thinking what's gonna happen with investors' money. Are we gonna be able to pay the bills? Are we gonna be able to pay investors? When we run the numbers, when we buy an asset, we don't have a scenario called, you know, an epidemic or a pandemic. Because it's such an extreme scenario. That definitely kept me up at night, probably for three to four weeks until we saw that, okay, we we're able to handle this, and actually on some assets, cash flow have has increased because we were quick to act, and before the end of March, we already came out with this uh, early bird you know discount. If you pay us for three, two, three, four months in advance, you're going to get a bit of a discount, and then those who lost their jobs, you know those tenants it didn't impact the assets because they already paid in advance because they had the money to do it beforehand so. I remember that I, I yeah. had the same, the same sense of uncertainty and concern
1: because I was with the company, of course, back then also. And I think that also, what you know, everyone would probably find interesting is, and you know, I know you're very humble and very discreet, but I'm very proud of some of the things that we implemented also. That were, you know, maybe in some people's opinions, smaller, but, you know, it was the human touch. So, you know, I remember that we compiled together an entire list of nearby employers that were hiring and made sure to give that to the property management teams on site so that when people came in and expressed, you know, a struggle with employment or a concern about being able to meet rent, we immediately had up to date resources, you know, to point them in the direction of. I thought that was you know, an additional thing that we actually did that really helped, you know, potentially turn that around for people and help carry people through those hard times. And I remember, you know, I I believe we also sent gift cards for groceries to our tenants, you know, to help just, you know, kind of minimize the impact of that, you know, what a scary and uncertain time that was. and, And a lot of struggles people were facing, you know, so as much as, you know, I definitely think that Renovation on demand worked very well. I think the early bird discount worked very well, especially in you know protecting our investors, you know, potentially against that. I think the human touch and the, the extra things that we also took the time to do also make a big difference. So I know a lot of people don't know that, so I just leaked a mm-hmm. company secret, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think it's awesome to remember that there's that balance, you know, between right. business and still being human and still having compassion and, and empathy. And so, you know, I, I remember that though. I was stressed out also. (laughs)
0: Uh, These were, yeah. Interesting times. You made me feel really good. You gave me confidence. (laughs) Like you were totally confident. So
1: I remember that though. Definitely. All right. Well, good. So, since we are actually now into an acquisition and a disposition at the same time we have been able to create an opportunity for a 1031 exchange for our investors which is you know a tremendous tax benefit but i think that you know listeners would really enjoy understanding just what goes down behind the scenes in order to align an acquisition and a disposition at the same time it's certainly not an accident so i think it'd be great if you kind of share with us How far back do you have to go to begin planning to have this actually happen at the right time for everybody?
0: So a lot is happening behind the scenes. Just kind of maybe to set the scene for our listeners, when you exit a deal and the moment you close, meaning the moment you get the money from the the escrow company, you have 45 days to identify a new asset. You have 45 days to go to the IRS and say, hey, I found a new asset, which is like kind. And I want to move my profits and my initial investment to the new asset, so I can defer the capital gains tax and not pay them right now. So you have a very defined window. 45 days. The IRS does not take any extensions. 45 days and that's it. And so within 45 days, you need to identify the next asset and We've done it before when we, shortly after signing the purchase and sale agreement, we found a new asset. And so that was a very smooth transition. But when you don't have that new asset, you need to make sure that you keep looking at deals and you identify a deal on time. And then you got to make sure that you actually going to get the money on time. So you, you're able to move it to the new asset. Because let's say, for example, if the total sale proceeds and in initial investment is about $20 million and you found a new deal that needs 25 or 20, whatever that is, but you're closing on the new deal a week before you're closing on the exiting deal, then what do you do? Because you have a week when basically you don't have $20 million, in the bank account or or held by the qualified intermediary, which is basically the escrow company that is holding the money and is moving it to the new investment. So there's a timing factor here, which on one hand, you need to make sure that you don't miss that 45-day window. But on the other hand, if you find a deal that is within those 45 days, but it's too early and you need to close it before you get the money from the exiting deal, that could be an issue, also. So, you're trying to time it, and you got to come up with plan B. Say, okay, I need to make sure that I'm liquid enough. So, if I don't get the money on time, I'm not going to default on my, you know, agreement and I'm not going to lose my, you know, non refundable deposit because I can't bring the money on time. So, always have a plan B, but there's a lot that that is going on behind the scenes we're reaching out to investors we we see who wants to stay and the vast majority i would say probably 99% of investors want to roll their money over into a 1031 exchange and then you need to sometimes to restructure you know companies it's it's a whole operations it's fun it's exciting it's also hard work but there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes
1: definitely definitely and you know i'd be curious to ask you because we are talking about you know the intensity of capital raising and also with what you shared with your former story what would you tell the younger ellie about raising capital that you've now learned
0: i would say just keep doing what you're doing that's it and and not being afraid of being vulnerable and share your story you don't have to show that you came from that amazing background because my background was pretty humble That's who you are. Own it, share it, you're gonna be fine. And when I started, I had those kind of thoughts. What should I present? You know, there was that lawyer aspect of, yeah, I was a lawyer, I worked in real estate. There was, you know, graduated from MIT, or, you know, this is who I am. Came from Israel, I was pretty poor. I worked my way up and I fought to get anything that I have, you know, I have in life today. And that's my truth. And I think people resonated with it. And, you know, I hear a lot people who say, hey, we, we like your story, because it's there on the website. Let me tell you, that's only half the story, the really hard stuff I didn't even put there, because I think it's a bit too much. But I think, you know, your question, yeah, I would just say, just what your intuition is telling you, don't question it, because it took me a little bit more time, a little bit of time to kind of go out there and share my story. Just do it, you're going to be fine. And it's kind of a hard question for me, because I don't like to look back. I think it You can't really change the past, at least the way that we perceive, you know, time. You can't really change the past, so you can analyze it to make better decisions in the future and improve how you operate, how you think, how you behave. I rarely, rarely look at the past. Say, I could have, should have, would have, and it's never a good exercise, a mental exercise, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, excellent. So, rather than looking behind, on that note, let's look forward. So, you know, you're in a position where you can technically, you don't have to do this. You don't have to have Blue Lake Capital. You don't have to have a big, you know, scaled out company. You could be, you know, living, you know, on an island and living off your passive investments, you know, like, you know, a lot of our investors actually are working towards. So why, first and foremost, do you have Blue Lake Capital and what is your vision for where we're going and why?
0: I think I would get bored very quickly just laying, you know, by the beach or, or do nothing or just relax all day. I think it's much more exciting to build something. At first when you don't have money, it's all about making money and not being poor and being able to pay your rents and you know, I remember when I was driving a fifteen hundred dollar, you know, car and not being able, you know, my rent was I think 400 bucks or $350 a month. So when you're there, all you can think of is I want to make you know money. I don't want to be poor. Then you make money and then you make more money. And then at some point it stops being about the money because yeah, technically I don't have to. And actually some investors ask me, why do you do this? I mean, you obviously don't need to keep doing it, but You know, and I'm not comparing myself to those guys at all. They're still, you know, I'm light years away. But if you look at Steve Schwartzman, if you look at, you know, Jeff Bezos, they don't have to work either. Why do they do what they do? Because it's rewarding, because it's fulfilling, because there's nothing better than to tackle an issue and solve it and say, ah, I fixed it. Or to conquer the next, you know, challenge and look back and say, I did it. It's just like, you know, I love skiing and I started skiing when I was, uh, just when I moved here about seven or eight years ago, so my mid-30s, and it was scary. The easiest thing would be not to get on the slopes at the age of 34, or 35, but then when in, in your first week of getting on, you know, the slopes, actually rocking a black diamond and then going all the way down very slowly, very scary, and very scared and very slowly, and then look back. And look at the mountain behind you and say, I just did that. Of course, it was scary. Of course, it was much more comfortable to sit in, you know, the kind of lounge area and drink, you know, a hot coffee and with cream and just relax and look at the beautiful white snow outside. But just being out there in the cold, you know, facing my fears and going down very slowly just to make sure that I'm, you know, doing black diamonds. There's nothing more rewarding than look back at what you've done. And say, wow, that was one hell of a ride, and I'll do it again. Yeah, definitely. Definitely.
1: Well, you know, I think that something else is pretty interesting. And I love your passion for that, I have to say, because it's it's very inspiring for me, you know, working with you. It's helped me also begin to really adopt the same attitude. And I, I was already plenty driven before I met you. Oh yeah. And, <laughs> and then, you know, I meet you and we come together, and it's double that. And so I know that it's very inspiring for me, but I hope that uh, investors are inspired by it too. And, you know, on that note, you and I both know that, you know, we've been approached before by institutional partners that have essentially, you know, really wanted to kind of take over deals and, you know, frankly, kind of push investors out. And you've always been really good about holding the line on that, even to the point of saying no to institutionals. And I remember the time that you told me, It's a lot harder to say no to money than it is to say yes. Mm -hmm. And it was very good advice. And so, you know, will you explain what is it behind, you know, I mean, I can kind of connect the dots, but basically, why do you continue to hold that line and protect that opportunity for investors instead of partnering with institutionals and, you know, perhaps scaling out and making a really, really big company?
0: Yeah, and we're still, you know, it's not something we're not considering. We're still speaking with institutions, but the right ones are the ones that are gonna let us keep managing the assets. And I don't wanna be in a position where, you know, I need to hand over the keys to the kingdom to someone else because it's a great opportunity. I have, you know, my investors are the ones who have brought me to where I am and my team. You know, without investors and the team, I would not have been here. And so I'm very grateful for that. And every investor that is a repeated investor that says, I'm going to invest with you again, or I'm going to move my money, you know, I'm going to do the 1031 exchange with you. I don't take it for granted. There are other options out there. There are other, you know, investment vehicles, there are other sponsors, other things you can do with your money. And I always remember, you know, where I came from and how, you know, the first raise was always the hardest. And then you doubled in raise amount and it gets a little bit easier and so on and so forth. But I'm still very, very much appreciative and remember how you know what role investors played in my career, and I'm guarding it. And I think you know you you also someone who's been working with me. It's investors come first, and it's not just it's not lip service. It's actually you know something we implement. And if it means to push that you know our teams to execute and pay investors on time and pay them you know based on projections and being very communicative and open and honest with investors. These things are not hard to do, but you know, I need to keep that in the back of our minds, which is why I don't want to let go of investors. I want to keep that partnership. And some of them know us on a personal level. Some of them became, you know, our friends. And so I am interested in in working with institutions, but has to be the right type of partner. You know, we could have exited or sell all of our portfolio to institutions and, and exit now and make, you know, an, a nice bonus for us. But the best thing would have been to take the property and sell it in the market. In fact, one of the deals we're exiting right now, we had, you know, an an offer from an institution to buy it, but it was $10 million less than what I thought we could have gone in the market. So as a sponsor, I can say, oh, I can give them all five assets, 10 assets, whatever, make a lot of money and investors are happy and because we still exceeded projections, but I knew that if we're going to work a bit harder and actually... Bring the assets to market and try and see what we get. We can get a lot more because I don't want to sell it at a discount, and that's what we did. It's kind of slower and harder way to exit, but it serves our investors, and we have we're serving our investors, and they always come first.
1: Absolutely. All right. So I love what you're saying because I agree a hundred percent. I feel the same way. You know, I talk to investors. All day, every day, over and over again. And, you know, my loyalty obviously very much lies with, you know, the investors. And, you know, part of the reason why I love it too is because, you know, everyone, myself included, we're all trying to work towards the same type of goals and we're all trying to figure out how we can best build wealth. You know, for me, my why is definitely tied into my family. And for a lot of other people, it is also. But, you know, let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, one of the ways that we go about this, you know, is leveraging. And so I think that a lot of people, you know, understand leveraging to a certain extent, but I don't think they understand it completely. So can you talk about, you know, how do investors, just everyday Joes, leverage in order to actually begin to grow their wealth?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And to some extent, the same tools that are available to us are available to investors, high net worth individuals, and those which are just starting to invest right now, just different scale, right? So I have to start by saying that one of my immediate family members, she, when she hears that we're using leverage to purchase assets, it's a foreign concept to her. And she's, but I don't understand why do not just pay for cash, which is the worst thing you can do. But, you know, generally speaking, if you have, the concept is very easy. You have a house that costs, let's say, half a million dollars and you want to buy it for as a rental property, for an investment. You don't put $500,000 and say, oh, but now I'm going to get all the cash flow is going to be coming to my pocket and I'm not going to have to pay the interest rate payments. That's the wrong way of looking at it. Basically, take your half a million, you put $100,000 in five different homes And you leverage and you take a loan on, you know, all five homes. And we do the same thing. We're being very careful about it because you also don't want to over leverage, which is the other side of it. So over leverage means, you know, taking a pretty high loan to value, you know, loan. And so we like to stay within around 65 to 75% LTV, which means that on a $100 million deal, maybe $75 million. Basically, the proceeds are coming from a lender. The rest is money that we invest and we bring from investors and that 's why we're able to take a hundred million and divide it over several assets, not just one. so you know that's how you do it and that leverage is a wonderful thing if you do it the right way if you're being very conservative and right now you know interest rates are starting to go up, so you also got to be careful and knowledgeable about what type of debt you're putting on the property, and kind of know how to mitigate your risk, you know, by buying a cap on your fluctuating debt, and by underwriting to kind of extreme scenarios and see, okay, at what point am I not able to pay my lender, my loan, pay the loan back, and understand that. So if you're investing with a sponsor like us, we have teams that run all those scenarios and the numbers you don't really need to take care of it, but you do need to look at the OM and make sure that you're comfortable with the debt term. And if there's no debt terms there or loan terms, ask the sponsor to share that with you. And if you're buying a rental property, just make sure you educate yourself. There's a lot of information out there. There are books you can read to make sure that you leverage and you do it the right way.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Good. I think something else
0: that investors will really appreciate learning about you is how do you diversify? Ooh, how do I diversify? So I have to say that most of my wealth is actually invested in real estate, but another big portion of it is invested in startups. So I'm a minority owner of a couple of VCs, but also mainly invest as an angel investor. And I love, you know, I love technology. I understand technology and I use the knowledge that I've gained at MIT to kind of look into a company and say, okay, do they have a unique value proposition. How can they compete with the market? Is the market saturated? Is there an opportunity there? How strong is the team? So in in our household, my husband brings the startup opportunities, the angel investing opportunities, and we decide together. Sometimes we invest together. Sometimes there's a deal that I like and he doesn't and vice versa. So sometimes I say, hey, I don't like this deal. You can invest on your own, but I'm out. So it's kind of shark tanks. Without actually grueling the poor entrepreneurs, we sometimes do that, you know, over some phone calls. And I'm the real estate person, the real estate entrepreneur that brings deals. And so, you know, I obviously invest on each and every deal that I bring to investors. And my husband usually joins also and and invests, you know, his own money in the deals. And my family members also invest. And so, you know, we have employees, family members, friends, and investors all invest in our deals but that's basically how i diversify i have to say that i don't fully understand and i don't like the volatility of the stock market so i may invest there in the future but i'll have to hire someone i can't my heart is not going to be able to sustain like daily updates and monitoring you know how my portfolio is doing i'm not built for for something like that it's because i know i'm very i'm a perfectionist and i want everything to be done correctly and you have very little, I think, control over what's happening in the stock market. With real estate, you have more control because, you know, the risk of losing your investment is not that high. And I'm managing, you know, those assets. When it comes to angel investing, I just assume that most of the investments are not going to work out. And then there's going to be a few home runs that are going to make everything work. So it's a different mindset. But that's how I diversify, basically. Have not invested in Bitcoin. <laughs> so... <laughs>
1: Very interesting. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing. Well, good. Yeah. So on that note, we have actually arrived to the lightning round questions, which is very fun for me to actually give to you because these are the questions that we ask every guest that comes on Ready to Scale. And so (laughs) are you
0: ready? No, but let's do it.
1: (laughs) All right. So in between all of those things that you just shared that you were busy and doing, Ellie, do you actually have a hobby?
0: Yes, actually. Skiing?
1: You already said skiing, so you have to think oh, of another.
0: Oh, you see I was about to say ski. Yeah, I love skiing. Other hobbies, I like to read books, especially business books and I like to understand how you know, people like Steve Schwartzman from, you know, Blackstone and, and others built their companies and learn from them and be inspired. That's also one of my hobbies when I have when I have time, it's sometimes hard to do by the end of a long you know workday. I did try
1: to invite him onto the podcast, but <laughs> he graciously declined right now, so
0: we'll keep trying. we' we'll, we'll get Steve at some point <laughs> But yeah, reading is one of them.
1: Good, so Anne, also, I know you're an open book, but at the end of the day, you still are a private person in, in some regards, so what is
0: something that nobody else knows about you? I was not prepared for my own questions. <laughs> When I was six years old, I used to gather kids in the little kind of area where I, where I lived. And I enjoy just teaching them things and playing games and giving them, you know, prizes from my very limited collection of toys. And one day I got back home and I cried because I actually gave away all my toys. And my dad burst out laughing and then he gave me a few dollars to go buy somewhere, and I felt really good about it. But I used to kind of gather kids and teach them things that I've learned when they were younger than me. So it was kind of found ways to teach and to connect with other kids. Yeah, I don't think I've told that, but it's it's something that from my childhood that I fondly, I kind of remember, like look back at the, this girl and, and it makes me smile.
1: <laughs> nice, nice. I love it. All right. And you already said you love books. So what are you currently reading? And what's kind of your biggest takeaway from it right now?
0: So I'm actually I'm reading multiple books, and I'm kind of moving between some of them. I like to reread What It Takes by Steve Schwartzman. And I've also read The One Thing, which is a great book by Gary Keller from Keller Williams. And it's it's basically explaining business owners, and entrepreneurs, how to identify that one thing that is going to help them grow their business and focus only on that because there's so much noise. And you wake up in the morning, especially if I'm on the West Coast, the headquarters, our headquarters in the East Coast. I wake up, you know, at six or seven to 15,000, you know, text messages and emails. And you can get carried away with doing that and, not, and losing focus on what is really going to be that one thing that's going to help your business grow. It's not answering 5,000 emails. It's actually, using the first hours of the day to work out that one thing that is going to make everything else easier and help you grow your business. And that's one of the things that I still remember and really inspired me you know, tremendously.
1: Awesome. Awesome. I love it. So of course, my favorite question of every episode that we have, and I'm sure that people can guess maybe what your answers will be, but I'm going to add a twist to it for you. So The question usually is, you know, what is your advice for living an extraordinary life? But my question for you is going to be not only what is your advice today for living an extraordinary life, but how has your vision of an extraordinary life changed
0: Mm. throughout
1: the course of your career?
0: That's interesting. So the first part of the question, I would say, and I'm going to steal from Nike, just do it just do it. Don't get into analysis paralysis. Don't let fear, you know, take the best. Because I think most people or many people are motivated by fear to some regard. And they they think, you know, they have dreams and ambitions and they don't pursue them because they're afraid. Just do it. Just do it. The worst that can happen is that you're going to fail, which means, you know, you haven't done anything which is where you are right now. So what do you have to lose? Just go for it, just just try it. And I think I'm a huge believer in manifestation. So if you manifest something enough, you know, visualize it and see it and believe in it, that's gonna become a reality because you're gonna start making, you know, decisions and taking actions consciously and subconsciously to get to where you see to, you know, if you convince yourself that this is where you're gonna end up, you're just gonna start operating in that in that way, until you find yourself there. And, you know, I, I remember growing up that my dad used to say, you're aiming too high, you're going to crash and burn, because he wanted to protect me from, you know, from a heartache, from being you know, disappointed if I don't get what I wanted to. And I looked at him and said, what's the worst that can happen? I'm aiming, you know, I'm aiming high. Even if I'm going to achieve half of it, it's much better than not even trying. So I remember that. And, and then the second part of the question, how... Extraordinary life, how would that change? I think when I just started, again, when it was just about the money, I think my definition was make a lot of money, you know, be comfortable, have a comfortable life, and that's living an extraordinary life. And then when you get there, you say, wait a minute, I feel good, but it's not as an amazing feeling that I thought, you know, so that I would feel what happened. And then you realize that there are other things like connections, friends, family, charity, helping people that all together and hobbies create that extraordinary life when you can actually be happy. And it's not a constant thing because, you, you know, life is up and down. I'm going to live, I'm going to say I'm happy 100% of the time. But it's finding that, you know, okay, you know, for instance, I need to take a walk with my husband and, and my dog because I need to recharge my batteries. I need to talk about things and let's sit by the beach and, you know, eat grapes or something like that, which, you know, we do. That is what actually brings me happiness. To, it's the combination. That's extraordinary life for me. It's to find those sweet moments to recharge you, to feel good, and then go back and to the grind and you know, keep building a company, keep growing it, have that balance. For me, that's the best thing and not be motivated by money, not think about it, but work hard and the money is going to keep coming because you love what you do and, and you work hard for it. Because just focusing on making money is not what's, it can be a grind and it's not the most fun feeling. And, and I've been there. So for me, that's extraordinary life. It's just not being afraid and going after, you know, things. But remember, you know, the, the amount of joy that I get from my relationship, from knowing that I'm, I'm helping family, I'm helping friends, it doesn't go away. Money or cars or homes are exciting at first, and then it's just comfort. But when you have someone that is so great and is by your side and you create that fun, you know, enriching life, it's comfort, but it's also happiness and it doesn't stop. You don't get used to it like you get used to, you know, a brand new car.
1: Very well said. Very well said. And I couldn't agree more. It's a quality life. Yeah. It makes all the difference in the world.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, Ellie, thank you so much for coming on our show definitely enjoyed having you and it was very fun to actually switch sides here as you mentioned to our listeners and our investors if you the ask ellie anything episodes please feel free to send us an email at info at blake-capital.com all right
0: thank you janet for hosting me on the show it was really fun thank you thank you